Hello everyone, this is Gans and welcome to another episode of the Seat Table Podcast where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. My guest today is Matt Clifford, co-founder and CEO of Entrepreneur First, which he started with Alice Bentinck back in 2011. Entrepreneur First is what is known as a talent investor. They help extraordinary individuals find a co-founder, develop an idea and raise money from the world's best investors. So far, they've enabled more than a thousand people to create over 200 companies worth a combined $2.4 billion. On top of running EF, Matt writes Thoughts in Between, one of my favorite newsletters, so it goes without saying that I'm very excited about this conversation. We kick off with a couple of somewhat weird questions I've been meaning to ask Matt for a while, but then we dive straight into it. Entrepreneur first, why the talent model investing is as important as ever, the value of networks, and the main topic of our conversation, C-news, or common old genius. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Matt, it's good to talk again. Thanks so much for taking the time uh, to join me for this experiment. Thanks for having me, I'm excited. So I'm gonna start with a somewhat strange question. Um, you do podcasts, you do online events like the Interintellect, uh, you write your newsletter, why are you so generous with your time? I'm sure there's a self-serving element, of course, but I'd say you put in a lot more than you get out. Have you thought this through? <laughs> uh, gosh, now I'm starting to think maybe I haven't. Um, no, seriously, I, um, you know, I think one of the things that is a loose thread that connects everything I do, obviously the vast majority of my time goes on Entrepreneur First, but you know, I think the thread that runs through EF and, and everything else is just the opportunity to have meaningful conversations and ultimately meaningful action with, with extremely smart people. And, you know, one of the things I love most about the internet is the fact that it allows me to do that, you know, on a scale that would otherwise be impossible. So, you know, I, I don't sort of do an ROI calculation on these things, but I generally think, I don't think anything bad has ever happened for me investing time in, in interesting people and lots of very good things have happened. So, you know, right now I feel like I'm coming out ahead of that and, um, Happy to uh, continue to do that. Let's let's talk a few minutes about your newsletter. I really really enjoyed. I think it's it's really short, but it packs a huge amount of insights in a couple of paragraphs. What's your process for that? How do you consume all that information? Yeah, well, until lockdown, my answer was that I have a long commute. Um, so I, I live in Oxford, just outside London. But it takes me you know sort of an hour hour and a half to get in. I don't commute every day, but you know my process. Basically, is I read a lot anyway. I've always read a lot. That's sort of Tyler. Tyler Cowen has this great idea, the age of the infivore, and that really speaks to me. I, I I've always just wanted to to read. And actually, you know, I mean, your your, your question about ROI is an interesting one. Is actually how I came to write the newsletter because I realized I was doing all the reading, and someone said to me, I actually can't remember who it is, which is embarrassing. You want to be careful about your ratio of input to output. Because, you know, you can, you can read and read and read and absorb and absorb and absorb, but the, the value of that is relatively low if you, if you don't do anything with it. And I'd seen this in my personal life because I've been keeping a diary for the last 11 years and every day. And I found it like one of the most valuable things that I do. And it was pretty much the only place I was writing in my life. And I found it super valuable to go back and remind myself what I actually thought, not what I tell myself I thought, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I, you know, I sort of had the idea that, 
I assumed, I think probably correctly, that 90% of the work in writing a newsletter would be the reading and 10% would be the writing. So I thought for a relatively small incremental uh, investment uh, of time, I could get a lot more out of it. So basically what I do is I read during the week. Every week I start a new Evernote note. I just paste ideas and links in there as I go. And I try and cluster them around, around sort of themes. I guess, guess most of my reading is thematic anyway. And then on a, on a Sunday, I, I sit down for a couple of hours and I just turn that into always the same format as you were sort of alluding to, three sections of three paragraphs, five links uh, that are unrelated. It takes me about 90 to 120 minutes, which is really not that long given that I'm doing the reading anyway. So, I mean, it's not a big thing and I, I'm not, one, I'm not very good at um, self-promotion, I think. Um, and two, I don't do a lot of work on it, but you know, it has... I think maybe 3,000 readers and, you know, they're, they're some, I think some of the most interesting people in the world. I'm, I'm sort of super lucky who reads it. And although I, you know, I don't charge for it, obviously, and I, I can't imagine a world where that would make sense for me given, given my uh, day job, I, I've just got so much out of the relationships that I've built through it. So yeah, that's, that's how I do it. So those notes that you have one note per week, do you do, then go back and link them? So do you do like notes per like or tax per theme yeah so i use the search feature a lot in evernote you know you if as you read my newsletter you probably know usually i try and link back to previous discussions of the same topic i just do that with evernote search i mean in theory i should be an ideal user for rome research which has a total cult following i, I don't know how many of your listeners will know about it but it's, it's basically an evernote replacement that has reached almost religious levels of fervor from uh, its users. And I think I probably, you know, I, I have an account, but for me, not having an, uh, an iPhone app would just make it a non, it makes it a non-starter for the way I currently write notes. So yeah, I do, I do link back quite a lot. I've written a lot in my Evernote now. So there's usually something that, that's relevant on the, on the topic. But also, you know, I think this one, one idea that I'm really interested in is is, is the idea of um, intellectual alpha. So, you know, like in investing terms, obviously, you know, your beta is the bit that tracks the market and your alpha is the, you know, the return over the market. I sort of think there's like an interesting intellectual equivalent, which is there's a set of stuff that, you know, everyone in your industry is reading. And then, you know, there's a set of stuff that they're probably not. It's not an investing point for me. It's not how I made money, but... I, I really love collecting a very esoteric Twitter list of, of people to follow who I think are probably not followed by, by a lot of people in, you know, in, in my sort of circle. And so I see one of the values of what I do in the newsletter is uh, taking ideas that are being discussed in other circles and just, you know, most of my readers work in, in tech or startups or VC or lots done, you know, a lot in media as well. And so, you know, I, I think that's sort of probably why people, to the extent people like it, that's probably why, is that I'm sort of trying to keep a, a very kind of broad range of influences in my Twitter feed. Yeah, I try to do the same with books. And I think you do the same. You tagged me on that Twitter thread about the six books that were closest mm. to you. And I think not a single one of those was a startup book or a business book. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's very so, hard to find business books that stand the test of time. So, you know, I, I, I think I primarily read for pleasure. I, I, I wouldn't want to claim that I, I read a lot of medieval history because that's what I've always been interested in. I, I don't think that's massively useful for my day job of investing in deep technology companies, uh, primarily do it for fun. But, you know, for example, I, I really genuinely do see a lot of parallels between the Reformation and a number of trends in tech today. And 
does that make me a better investor? I don't know, but I, I've always liked that idea. I think it's a Bill Gurley idea of, you know, the prepared mind, you know, so sometimes you, you're the right investor for something, not because you're a better picker, but just because your mind is primed in some way to see something by, by everything else that you're, you're thinking about. Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. Let's, let's switch gears a bit and, and go to the topic of, of the conversation, which is of course, entrepreneur first, but most importantly, talent, an, an early stage company formation. I have this theory or this thought that can be broken down into two parts. So first, early stage company formation is key. I, I go as far as to say that it's the leading indicator for the health of an ecosystem. And then in a world where people have been gravitating and, and more now with COVID towards less risky paths, uh, the EF model, the entrepreneur first model is more important than ever. Would you agree with that? And if yes, why is now a time to start a company? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm sort of like highly financially incentivized to agree with that, uh, but I do agree with that. Um, yeah, I think, I think what's really interesting that we observe in our data at Entrepreneur First is that what COVID has done to risk appetite is highly uneven across age, stage, and geography. It's certainly true that there's a certain type of person who, you know, maybe apply, would have applied to EF in 2018 and 19, who this makes more risk averse and, and, and certainly makes this path more challenging for them. You know, I think it's people who, particularly people who, uh, and I've written a little bit about this, who, who is sort of like on a sort of career treadmill and, and, you know, need a nudge to jump off. And, you know, I actually think this describes a lot of people in Europe. You know, my personal belief is a lot of the, best founders that Europe are missing out on have got trapped in these career paths that, you know, kind of provide dopamine hits of promotions and salary increases and, and you know, et cetera, every just often enough to keep people in them. Strongly believe that's not in itself a negative signal that they're not good founders. I, some people are like, well, if they're good founders, they would just quit. I think life's way more complicated than that. I think it is harder for those people. You know, I think if you're lucky enough to work in a sector of the economy that remains robust right now, or you have managed to remain in a role when others around you haven't, I think it's just that much harder to jump off that, that treadmill. On the other hand, I think it raises the risk appetite of other people, particularly actually those earlier in their careers, particularly those who have domain expertise in areas that they see transformed overnight. You know, I, th I think there's this idea, kind of intuitive, that entrepreneurs are implicitly long volatility. Um, stasis is a very difficult environment for entrepreneurs. And, and right now, we definitely don't have stasis. So um, we're, we're actually seeing, you know, our applications are up very, very significantly year on year. Partly, that's probably just that we're, you know, even so far in, you know, there's a certain momentum to the business right now and trajectory. But I think it's more than that. I really do think that, you know, younger people, as I say, people who whose work has been very disrupted or who, you know, I'll give you an example, we're just seeing a ton of ton of change in, in workflows in, in healthcare right now. You know, I know you, you interviewed Jacob from Acurix, EF company. That's a great example of where, you know, you see five years of digital transformation in five weeks, suddenly what people work differently, things are possible. But take that, you know, within that one segment of healthcare and, and you know, imagine it up the entire healthcare stack suddenly like we're seeing like doctors or, or people who've worked in you know like big healthcare IT being like now is the moment to build the toolkit that you know that's going to um, transform primary care or secondary care or whatever so yeah it, I, I think on the one hand you know I, th I think 
the net effect, at least for us, is positive. I think to your question about why this makes talent investing so important, you know, what I would say is it's a moment where if you believe my point about volatility, giving people time and space to explore, you know, that problem space is more important than ever because, you know, I think one thing we're all finding in this, you know, enforced experiment in remote working is it's so easy to do back-to-back Zoom calls all day, every day, and not have a moment to actually like reflect. And so actually, one of the things I've always loved about EF, the idea of EF is just giving people a bubble of time where they can say, there's nothing I have to do right now, so I'm going to explore what the opportunities are. I think giving people that in an environment that's changing incredibly fast is so important. For those people that come into EF, arguably they have a bunch of different options, right? How do you minimize the cost of regret and the cost of failure? Yeah, so I think one thing that is um, generally misunderstood or maybe conflated when people talk about risk is the difference between company risk and personal risk for founders. The risk of starting a company as measured by you know the variance in the outcome for the company is extraordinarily high, obviously. Like most companies fail. Even somewhere like EF, where you know there are lots of soft landings when things don't work, and, and actually I think at least in the data so far, are, you know higher than average chance of success. Even so, most companies fail. So that risk is very high. That doesn't mean that founder risk is very high. And I think that distinction is really important and, and under discussed. So you know if you start a company and it fails, in the case where it's not taken very long, okay, maybe you've lost the difference between your income and your best alternative and the startup for you know six months, a year, whatever. It's kind of, it's trivial really over a lifetime of earnings. It's certainly not a, a disastrous impact. And of course, you know, as ecosystems grow, and I think certainly Europe is, is there now, and I would argue so is the EF global ecosystem. I, I don't think anyone who gets into EF, given how selective it is, ever has any problem finding work afterwards. You know, it's literally, I think, never happened. But then, you know, I'd say what's interesting about, and you know, this probably at some point I should turn this into a diagram, but if you think about the founder journey up the you know, maturity curve of the company, the personal risk uh, profile changes a lot. You know, but certainly by the time you're raising a Series A, you know, your salary is not crazy low. You know, I'm sure you can make more money at Goldman Sachs, but you, know, you, can, you can feed yourself, you can re- live a reasonable lifestyle. By the time you get Series B, you know, very often, you know, there's an opportunity to sell shares in a, a secondary sale. It's not always an opportunity, but it's become way more common. You know, by the time you're Series C, it's pretty unlikely that the outcome for you will be net negative, even relative to opportunity cost, even if the company fails. And so I just think that when you, when you like add in the fact that the chance of unemployment, admittedly, I'm talking about a certain type of founder and I'm conscious of like embedded privilege in that, but you know, like this is, in, in, in the world that I live in every day, the risk to the founder is, is like really minimal. And actually, if you make it through two years, the chance that it ends up being like a really negative outcome for you in your life feels pretty close to zero. Now, the bit I'm obviously missing is identity. Like if EF failed tomorrow, I don't think I could complain financially. You know, we've been very fortunate. You know, we've been involved in some companies that, that made money. And, you know, it was a reasonably big business now. So, I'm, you know, I'm not complaining. I don't think I could claim that it being financially a terrible thing for me. But, you know, like my whole life is EF. Like I've been doing this for, you know, nearly nine years. And, you know, my identity is tied up in it. So, like, 
I don't want to discount that. that that's really big. But I do think it's a sign of a maturity in the, in the European ecosystem, in our own ecosystem, that just I, I don't think it makes sense really to talk about risk for the individual as being a financial thing anymore. I guess that answers part of my previous question on why it's now with time to start a company. And now and, and, right. and always, really. So when, when it comes to starting companies, do you think or there are any fields or industries that look dumb or weird right now, but in a few years may look uh, much bigger than they are currently or mainstream? Like a great example is, let's say, Bitcoin in 2012, 2013. The first thing I'd say is I like... I. I don't consider myself a very good trend spotter. Um, I hope I'm a good people spotter. And you know, I, I sort of joke often to, to our investors that we, we outsource the trend spotting to our, to our entrepreneurs. That, that said, I, you know, I, I do have a few macro thoughts on, on this, although I you know, caveat, I don't know if they're any good. I mean, I still feel like if we had 10 years of Mark Andreessen's Software is Eating the World uh, come true, I, I think we're now in somewhere through a 10 to 15 year period of machine learning specifically eating the world. And one thing, you know, I've been reflecting on a lot recently is that the, you know, the Peter Thiel, Tyler Cowen critique of, you know, secular stagnation that, you know, the fact that we've had a lot of progress in the world of bits, but not in atoms. I think that's, you know, been broadly true, but I think what's happening now is, you know, machine learning eating the world is actually now bringing a lot of the world of atoms into the purview of the world of bits. And you know, I'm particularly excited about companies that are used machine learning to bridge those two worlds. So you know, most obviously, you know, I think machine learning meets biology, uh, meets materials, meets energy, meets manufacturing. You know, these, are, these are fields that until now have been fundamentally atom-based and I think are just becoming more and more addressable through the world of bits. So I, I, I'm super excited about that. You know, I think I'll say every cohort, we have a company in that space, but you know, many of the companies that I've got most excited about over the last few years have been in that, in that space. So, and that's one thing. And then I think I'm, I'm sort of interested in generally the sort of creation of new institutions and new incentives through software and, and software driven communities. It's actually not a space EF has done a lot of investing in, although we've done a bit. But, you know, I'm fascinated by the role that companies like Patreon and Substack and, and others are sort of having in creating um, new opportunities for people to, you know, design lifestyles, create businesses, create content. You know, I think you know, we, we funded a really interesting company in London called Omnipresent that does you know, some platform for enabling remote work around the world, but from the employer's perspective. It's actually a few companies in this space, but you know, I, I think our team is, is, is really great. But I think just generally this, this idea that technology increasingly can create new institutional norms, new ways of working that uh, will, will sort of have uh, far-reaching repercussions because you know, we, we talk a lot about platforms and you know, I, in general, I think that word's used so glibly, but I mean it in the sense of, you know, I, I think when we create new institutions and new incentives, you just get, you create new ways of imagining work that are not currently possible. And then the third thing I would say is I'm really interested in sort of ways to use payments infrastructure in a, I don't want to say vertically integrated way, because that's maybe not quite right, but sort of payments infrastructure as a way into transforming industries. I, I sort of got one example in mind, and then I'll sort of try to flesh it out a bit just found a really interesting company in, in India, which is sort of like a, 
Stripe for healthcare, for want of a better phrasing, they would probably hate that. Stripe would probably hate that. But you know, uh, what, what they do is what they what they've noticed, which I think is seems very plausible to me, is in uh, health systems like India, where you know, still, you know, like vast inequality. And so, you know, like a lot of, a lot of things are out of pocket. It's very, it's very challenging to uh, bring services into the insurance world because the actual act of payment by insurance carries so risk, so much risk. So these guys that we just funded, what they're basically building is, is payments infrastructure that allows payment by insurance at point of sale with verification built in. So in, in some sense, it's like a payments company. But I think what's cool about that is once that exists, what can you build on top of that to sort of move up the healthcare stack, if you like? I, I think health is one example, but I think there are a number of verticals where if you can actually make a type of payment happen that's there's previously been a lot of friction around, you can then actually like blow open a ton of opportunities for people on both sides of that transaction. Yeah, I wouldn't say, as you can tell, I'm, pro- I'm not a thesis-driven investor, but these are three things I'm excited about. No, absolutely. But the reason I ask is you see a lot more companies being formed than most people out there. So I'm sure you can, you're able to spot trends or, or patterns. So, Yeah, I mean, what, what I would say is where EF has done this well in the past, we've done it in a, in a talent-driven way. So, you know, we've, we got very lucky... And you know, made most of our brand and you know early returns for our investors by investing in in machine learning really quite early, like bef- before it was cool, as it were. <laughs> um, you know, so we, we were making investments in that space back in sort of 2013, 2014, um, just really as as deep learning was was becoming you know the obviously like dominant paradigm. And we got early to that not because we had a thesis about it, but because we basically went around computer science departments in the UK and said, who are the smartest people? And then we went and asked them what they were excited about. And it just became obvious that this was a, a thing. And, you know, that's how we met the founders of Tractable. It's how we met the founders of Magic Pony and, and you know, several of the, several of the others um, that, that we've done in that space. And so I suppose, you know, I, I have my own set of interests, but I do really take a follow the talent mentality on these things. And, and, you know, particularly that first one about machine learning eating the world, that's just something that I see that really smart and ambitious people are all over right now. Yeah, we, we rarely come up with new ideas. We usually steal them and it's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, let's, let's go to talent a bit and let's talk about seniors or commonal genius. This is a topic that we're both uh, fascinated by. For me, it's just a sport, but for you, it's really related to your day job. Before we dive into yeah. that, you, you want to break it, up, break it down for the audience a bit? What's seniors or what's communal genius? Yeah, so um, communal genius or seniors is the idea that, you know, although a lot of the way that history has been written is to, you know, put individuals on a pedestal, actually that's very rarely how kind of great progress happens and, you know, eras of great flourishing and t- places and great flourishing are, are usually actually a scene of, of, of individuals who are, not even necessarily working together, but working, working in relatively close physical or at least intellectual proximity. And there seems to be some, some force, without sounding too mystical, that when you, when you get you know, seniors, collective genius, these people push each other to greatness and um, lift each other. And there's something about both the, the density of, of the network around ideas, but also some element of, of density of network around values, norms, incentives, 
potentially some friendly competition. That's something that you know I think does seem to play a big role. And so, you know, when, when this happens, you, you you get this idea of seniors. Um, I think it's actually a Brian Eno idea originally, or at least he he, he coined the phrase. You know, some classic examples would be you know Renaissance Florence. You know, it's yes, you can say Michelangelo is the like preeminent superstar, but of course, you know, no one would say he was the only important figure in. So yeah, as you say, I think it's 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 an idea that if you care about talent, you kind of have to care about seniors, unless you're going to restrict yourself to some weird like great man theory of, of history. Do you think about those dynamics when designing the EF programs and the EF cohorts? Yeah, very much. And it's um it's an idea that we've been, I mean, I, I don't know if we'd have use the word seniors but the idea of like how do you get collective flourishing of talent we've sort of tried to embed that you know for a long long time in in what we do and i think one of the inspirations i mean i think i think it would be fair to say that at least at some level one of you you could describe the success of silicon valley as being partly about seniors so i suppose one of the observations about ef or rather that drove ef to the design of the model that we that we have is is the sense that there is something important about the norms and values of Silicon Valley that are shared that seem very, very different from a lot of the rest of the world. And actually, the lack of those norms in other places is one of the biggest barriers to entrepreneurs becoming entrepreneurs. Because one thing we, we strongly believe is, is that there's a chicken and egg problem in most ecosystems. So if you had this like really spectacular founder, they cannot actually realize that potential without a seed. And, and in particular, what we believe is they need a bubble of Silicon Valley norms to step into in order to be able to express uh, or rather fulfill their ambition. And so like one thing we've really, really tried to do with EF is make EF that bubble. Be a little bit more specific. Like one is like, how acceptable is it to be ambitious and to articulate ambition? You know, I think it, it's maybe now a little outdated as a stereotype, but there's definitely elements of it that are still true that... In Europe, it's sort of still, oh, you know, tone it down a bit. Don't, you know, don't say you're going to change the world. You know, isn't it enough to be successful, etc. You know, like, so, you know, EF is a place where it's, abs it's not only fine, it's, you know, it's encouraged to, to say that you want to do something really big. Um, second, I think technology itself, like the value of technology itself, again, potentially a little outdated now, but I still see it. You know, one of the things that made us start EF was just this sense that, technologists were so undervalued in Europe. I mean, I remember early on, almost before we even had a cohort, when I was just trying to get to know the, the startup ecosystem in, in, in London, you know, going to these like angel events, pitch events, and just hearing the way some investors talked about technologists, it was like genuinely repulsive, you know, sort of like, you know, you know, code monkeys, put them in the back room and they will, you know, they, you know, find an MBA to run it, put the code monkeys in the back room. And this is just like the opposite of Silicon Valley, right? You know, no one would be like, oh, what Bill Gates really needed was a business guy. Um, and so, you know, I think again, it's like, if I think about a value set, I think that's another one, which is like, we back technologists, you know, we trust technologists to, to build and run businesses. And I think when you, again, when you build a community around those norms, you, you unleash people. So, you know, we've tried to be quite deliberate. I think probably the most innovative thing we've done in, in trying to create seniors is how do you bootstrap network density? Because, you know, I think if you, if you talk to anyone who's thought hard about Sil Silicon Valley, you know, I, I've probably been particularly influenced in this by, by Reid Hoffman, because obviously I had 
through me yeah, had uh, opportunity to spend a lot of time with them. You know, I, I think this idea of network density is so key. The trouble is, the, the way we originally thought of EF, which was essentially think of it as a series of marriages that take place, you know, pair, people pair up and they work together. You don't actually get network density because people pair off really early and, you know, they know each other, but you haven't really built a, a community. I think that one of the few, like, really innovative things that we did was sort of flip that model on its head. So at EF today, instead of saying pair off, we say let's lower the bar and the friction to getting into a team. And then it's also lower the bar and the friction to getting out of a team. So there's no stigma at all at EF for, you know, you and I saying we're going to work together. And then 24 hours later, say we're not going to work together. And obviously at a certain point, we want people to stick. But, you know, the first few weeks of the program, they're all about that iteration through teams. And what's cool about it is that, yes, it means that people are more likely to find the right partner. But almost more importantly, it means that people actually know a lot of people in that community. And one of the things we encourage as a, as a ritual, if you like, and I think rituals are very important in, in Seniors, is when a team breaks up, we get, we get the, both, both people on the team to announce it in, in, in our sort of like Slack and celebrate it and talk about what they learned about each other and about, about working together. And so, it, you know, again, so once the teams are funded, we, we don't want them to break up. But I think kind of creating this norm around we should just see this as a, you know, a place where we can build each other up and, and amplify each other's outcomes. And that's been really important in our design. What about competition? How do you think about that within EF cohorts, right? Yeah. So I wrote about this recently in the newsletter um, about the role of competition, because I, I think it's very clear that seniors and competition have a relationship. I, I then read a paper about the negative impact of competition in science, which made me sort of question this. And the conclusion I reached, because I've seen competition have very positive effects at EF, and I'll, I'll, I will talk a bit about that. The conclusion I reached is competition is positive when the incentive it creates is as closely as possible aligned with your ultimate objective. So if there's any way to sort of game competition, by you know achieving something that isn't actually the goal then people will take this so you know in the example of science you know the paper that that, that i read and discussed in the, in the newsletter shows that you get a lot of strategic behavior where you know scientists end up p-hacking you know like trying to find you know the one correlation in the in the data set or you know they end up deliberately working on in incremental problems that aren't very important because it gets them published etc yeah, i think one of the nice things about yeah. It's a game. It's a game, right? And one of the nice things about startups is that the criteria, are, I don't want to say they're objective, but you know, it's somewhat hard to game. Like, yeah, you could say like, oh, it's a game to get funded, but ultimately it doesn't serve you particularly well to get funded for something that's not going to work. And so, you know, I think the thing that's hard to game is, is traction. You know, if customers want what you're doing, that tends to be pretty real. And so, you know, I think what we've seen at EF is, Getting the founders to talk publicly, or rather publicly meaning within their, within their cohort, about what they've achieved over the previous two weeks. It's interesting. What we've seen is that there are two possible equilibria there. Most of the time, fortunately, it's the positive one, which is that you, you get some company starts to break away. And then some of the really competitive people like, no, we, we, we're going we're gonna to chase them and we're going we're gonna to get there. And then you get kind of people get lifted by it. And actually, you know, I, I often think, because you know, it was one of the early cohorts and I was spent, you know, we only had one site then, so I spent a lot of time directly with it. You know, this, this was my experience of watching Tractable and Magic Pony in, 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 in that cohort in London. You know, they're 
great guys, the people that founded those companies, but super competitive and really wanted to be, both of them wanted to be like the top company in the cohort. And um, it, it was really great for them both, I think, to do that. I think occasionally though, it can backfire, which is, you know, every so often, I don't know how many cohorts we've done globally now, it must be 24, 25, you know, maybe like two or three times, just a cohort just doesn't, doesn't quite gel. And, you know, if, if you don't get that company that sets the, uh, sets the tone, it can almost become this thing where you can breed complacency. You know, if like, if no one's like clearly marching ahead, you know, you can get a dynamic where everyone's like, oh, well, I must be doing okay. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened for a long time. And I won't name a cohort where it did, <laughs> to be unfair on the people, but we, we've definitely had two that I can think of now well over uh, a year ago in both cases where it just didn't quite work and you, you almost get the opposite effect. So I do think you need this, you need this lift and you need a trailblazer. Yeah, it's all well, the thing about loops or flywheels is they work both ways, right? <laughs> They're a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you said one of EF's goals is to essentially build pockets of Silicon Valley dynamics and behaviors in other parts of the world. How do you yeah. pick and test those locations? Yeah, it's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. You know, we, in general, EF, we've been thinking about a lot because I think one thing I would say is I, until now, we've we've really sort of tried to the way we've evaluated sites is we basically said well there's two things that matter talent and capital so you know we're going to filter on places with great talent and places with good but not necessarily outstanding capital i think if it had truly outstanding capital then you know like i don't think we'd ever do ef in silicon valley because you know what's the problem to solve um the opportunity is in as you say creating the, the pocket I think we probably locked out a bit with London in that it was in that like perfect Goldilocks position of there's a lot of capital, but not like so much that the problem we were solving was solved. And I think probably that made us overestimate how many places there were like that. You know, my, my sense is there's actually, you know, there's probably more than six, which is how many we have now, but fewer than 20 for sure. And so I think one of our, my big things now is to say, if there are places that would have great talent, but not great capital, how can we serve those places? Because that to me is the real win. Hopefully, you know, in terms of business for EF, but actually I think for like unlocking uh, global innovation is, it seems crazy that there are all these people who presumably have the same talent distribution as anywhere else in the world who, you know, because they don't grow up in a place where VC is a thing, you know, they, they, they don't have um, the opportunity. So, you know, we're spending a lot of time, particularly now that, We've just had to do this big, you know, remote working experiment for several months. Is like it's actually taught us a lot about how it's possible to flatten the world a bit with respect to capital. So you know, we obviously couldn't do our normal in-person demo day during during lockdown. You know, so we put it online, and you know, I have to say the team did a great job. But they'd be the first to admit it was a pretty low fidelity version of uh, an online experience. We did some great videos of the companies and then we just put them online. But despite that, you know, I suppose the point I'm making is we didn't put a lot of effort in, but despite that, we had four times as many investors look at the videos than we have at 10 demo day. And many of them were from Silicon Valley. In particular, a lot of them were from Silicon Valley from firms that we have not co-invested with in the past. And, and so I was just very struck by this flattening effect uh, that happened. And so I suppose one of my, there's a long way of saying one of my new goals for EF is I would like us to get to the point 
where being an EF company has like a higher weight coefficient than being a German company or a Singaporean company or you know, a British company. Because right now, I think geography is maybe the dominant coefficient on the outcome of, of most companies. Obviously, there are companies that blast through the ceilings of their ecosystem. But in general, the ecosystem is a ceiling you know, outside Silicon Valley. So I'd love to build the EF global ecosystem such that being in that swamps the effect of being anywhere else. And, you know, we could use our global network to um, flatten the capital requirement because then you could really go anywhere where there was talent, which, you know, at least my thesis would be that's most places. How do you think about bridging the gap between the local networks and the entire EF global network? And do you think you'll ever reach a point in which the network effect of EF is the product like YC, for instance? Yeah, another, another thing I'm spending a lot of time on at the moment. I mean, I think if I was to self-critique on this, I would say I think we've done a pretty good job of the local network effect by site. I think in London, actually, maybe it's worth just zooming out just for a second on that. You know, I think venture capital traditionally does not scale. You know, it's, it's, it's a sort of, ironically, it's a lifestyle business given how, how much VCs hate lifestyle businesses. And the reason it doesn't scale is that the scarce resource traditionally is partner time. And so, you know, every additional investment reduces partner time per investment, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, YC, Andreessen Horowitz, these are two sort of interesting experiments in how you scale VC to some extent. Arguably, YC is sort of the purer version. Although even, you know, I think arguably even YC is looking at some of the limits of scale, you know, once you get to the size they are. So, you know, I think we've thought about that from the beginning is like, what is the limiting factor on scale? And I think, you know, we wanted to avoid it ever being partner time, not least because I'm not sure I, you know, if, if that means me in particular, I don't want to speak for Alice, but, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm that great a resource anyway. So, you know, how do you, how do you escape the, the, the value being capped by, you know, the number and, and the identities of the partners? And, and I think the answer, as you say, is network effects. And, you know, like one way that both YC and EF would aspire to overcome the traditional barrier to scale is how do you make it better as you add investments? Well, one way is you help those entrepreneurs feel like a community and you encourage and incentivize and normalize helping each other so that actually every additional investment makes it better rather than worse. I think that's been true for us at a local level. You know, I think in London, you know, one of the reasons that you know, the performance in London is really fantastic, I, I think, obviously I'm biased, but you know, I think the numbers speak for themselves, is that you know, like the, the network effect is very real. You know, our alumni sell EF to uh, new candidates. They, you know, often get involved in, in helping entrepreneurs during uh, the time they're with us. You know, some of the ones that have exited now invest both in EF and in, in stops directly. You know, it just it clearly, I feel, has got, you know, after, after some teething problems, I wouldn't want to pretend we did this perfectly. But, you know, I think clearly today EF gets better with scale. And that's true with every site. You know, we see each of our sites get better with scale. I think what we haven't done well until now is make the global system have network effect rather than the local stacks. But we're putting a lot of effort into that now, partly because, again, of this sort of flattening effect of geography that COVID has, has sort of accelerated. So, you know, I think it's the easiest way for us to do that is I think we've had like 1,700 different investors invest in EF companies. So, you know, exposing that information to the whole global community so they can help each other diligence investors and, and figure out the right investors for them. That's one easy example. But the other one, of course, is talent. You know, we're seeing, I don't know, probably like 20,000 people a year across the world 
right now, frankly, we don't do enough to bring the power of that network to the full global portfolio. But, you know, watch this space. We've got lots of ideas. And I, I think we'll um, uh, certainly in 2020, I think we'll make some big moves on that. We're all victims of COVID, <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> How, do you think about, this is not something I prepped for, but it occurred to me as you were speaking about picking locations based on talent and capital. Do you think about EF as a marketplace connecting both parties? I think of it as a marketplace, but less about less about connecting capital and talent. I mean, increasingly, one of the ways I think about it is connecting the world's best CEOs with the world's best CTOs. One of the reasons, and you know, we, we get a lot of um, criticism is not the right word, but like a lot of pushback on, you know, why are we so obsessed with technology? You know, like. You know, we have competitors, you know, direct clones of EF that, that are going after arguably low-hanging fruit, you know, like e-commerce and, you know, kind of things without a technical barrier. You know, why are we so obsessed with this? I think the simple answer is I really believe that the biggest danger in any model like this is adverse selection. That's why there's not many accelerators that have really made money, whereas YC is probably one of the greatest venture investors of all time, is that you know, like adverse selection is such a risk. If you're investing small amounts of money at low prices, the danger is the best entrepreneurs just don't want to take that deal. So they skip you. Um, and, you know, I think YC has avoided that by you know, making the compelling case to entrepreneurs that it's the opposite. It's actually worth, it's more valuable to have YC take 7% of your cap table than not. And that's the decision, you know, a founder has to make. You know, I think like probably that's true for some people, it's probably not true for others. I think for EF, you know, how do we justify taking, you know, a decent chunk of the company, um, obviously not, not huge amounts compared to a VC, but, you know, 10%, how do we justify it? Well, if we made your company possible when otherwise it wasn't possible, I think it's a great deal. You know, if you're like a truly exceptional CTO in some area of technology who wants to, you know, be a founder of the company but doesn't think they're the CEO and we can find the right CEO for you, arguably we're like incredibly cheap. That's like great value. My worry about doing things outside areas where there's real technical differentiation is why do these people not know each other already? You know, like, you know, I would have thought that in a lot of these environments, particularly if you're recruiting a lot of people, frankly, like me, you know, like ex-consultants who are generalists, and that's what you want in the founding team, I'm much more skeptical that it's worth giving up 10% for an ex-McKinsey person to meet an ex-Bain person. I mean, that, that just feels like a relatively uh, low-value add. And so, you know, I do think of it as a marketplace, but I really think of it as like building extraordinary liquidity in extraordinary talent that due to a lack of network density wouldn't meet each other. I see the capital bit as important, but it's sort of table stakes these days. I do think we're pretty good at fundraising. And, you know, I think again, like EF companies, at least in the data I've seen, they raise more money on better terms than non-EF companies in Certainly in London, I don't have enough data in the other in, in the other geographies yet. But you know, but I think that's you know, frankly, that's because of the quality of the people rather than than our ability to aggregate. You know, I, I, and actually, I think it's pretty hard to aggregate. I think if you have the you know, if if you have the demand for capital, the supply comes. Like we we never have problems getting investors to come along. So it is a marketplace, but it's much more a marketplace around finding unique skill sets that are unlikely to organically meet, and therefore making you know, something out of nothing. This reminds me of your, you often mention that entrepreneurship is a high school profession like medicine. Other than meeting the right co-founder, 
What are the biggest bottlenecks holding more people back from starting more companies? I think there's three big ones. One is one is culture, and again, like I think the the, the kind of conventional narrative around this, at least in Silicon Valley, has been wrong, which is the true entrepreneurs, whatever that means, will overcome that cultural barrier. It seems sort of like a slightly bizarre idea to me, like that the entrepreneurs are this there's an entrepreneur gene that, that you know, kind of means that all these true entrepreneurs will overcome any barrier. I mean, that, that seems crazy. And, you know, I think a good thought experiment to test how absurd that idea is, is it would suggest that there would be literally nothing you could do to make it harder for people to be entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, like you ban it and it was, you know, these true entrepreneurs will still find, you know, clearly, you know, if you, if you remotely believe in, in marginal thinking, anything you can do to lower the barriers will get more of the people that could be great founders to be great founders. So I think culture is one. That's why I'm like a big, big fan of the, um, of the idea of bubbles of, of values, bubbles of norms. That's one. Two is money. I mean, um, this has changed a lot for us at EF. We pay a small stipend. It is small. It's, we index it broadly to what a PhD student might make on their stipend, which makes sense for people coming out of PhDs. But to be honest, at EF now, we get many people who, you know, the, the stipend we pay is pretty meaningless to them compared to what they were making before. Uh, but I still think it's important to normalize the idea that that, that, that cost can be borne through financing, that actually... You know, if we go back to the idea we were discussing before about the lack of personal risk because these people are you know, impressive, exceptional people, that just means there is the possibility of creating a financing product that um, lowers the barrier to someone getting started. So you know, we you could argue, oh, you know, EF now, you, know, you take so many people who are experienced, they have money, you know, drop the stipend, you'll save loads of money. I mean, maybe we'd save some money, but I actually think it's an incredibly important sort of symbol of, of belief about, about barriers that, that, we, that we do pay a stipend. And then I think the, the third thing is, is actually, and again, it might sound absurd in Silicon Valley, but I think it's access to real-time feedback on what an idea that's worth dedicating 10 years of your life uh, to is. Silicon Valley is really good at that because whenever you talk about an idea, there are people around you who have enough knowledge and experience to be you know, somewhat valuable, but also the right attitude around upside thinking rather than like downside thinking. That they're not just saying, that's a terrible idea, don't do it. They're saying, oh, how about if, or yes, and. I actually think that's like, people, people are right to say that startup advice has been commoditized. So like, you want to learn how to fundraise, there are a million blogs out there that will tell you how to do it. You want to know what a good benchmark for you know, seed metrics for a SaaS company is? You're right, you just Google it. You want to like chat with a smart person with some context about why your idea, although it might be like 80% there, is still not worth it right now, but with these tweaks, it would be. That you can't Google. And I actually think that one of the most valuable things that we do at EF is just nudge people out of not the most common mistakes in the sense of you know, ones that you could list you know, one to 10 in a blog post, but just ways of thinking that push them towards the most ambitious version of themselves. And that actually is the hardest thing to scale, I would say. You, know, you can actually scale the financing pretty well. I think the culture scales within a community, but actually sort of bringing that sort of friendly, genuinely ambitious critique, that I think is a barrier because it means that if people, if people never get past their first bad idea and the negative feedback they get for that, I think there's, there must be tens of thousands of exceptional founders that had a bad idea, and that was that's on a, alone stopped them getting started. Have you ever thought about 
open sourcing some of this very specific but very important things that make you have great like this um i don't know how to call it process around ideas we have thought about it i think it's hard to do but it's something yeah i mean i think i think in general that that is the direction we would like to move in in that it took us a long time to figure out ef and i think even now we'd said a lot still to do even on the core but i do think where we're getting to is the sense that we need to give we would like to give an order of magnitude more people exposure to elements of it and and sort of not be afraid of that as like a cannibalization of our of our own model i think the right way to do that is is sort of not obvious i mean i think i think yc has dealt has done startup school extremely well for for what they're trying to do I think it's been amazing i think presumably people get a lot out of it at least that's what i hear but also an incredible top of the funnel marketing obviously to have thousands of people i mean i think there's this interesting a friend made a point to me the other day which is you have a decision in any people curation business when you're offering services to the people you curate for for one of the better term which is whether you're telling people that you are are you a selection business or are you a treatment business and, you know this is the argument people make about universities all the time is it is it the signal of having gone to harvard or is it the education of having gone to harvard and i think the reality is that you can you can build a business that is all about signal but at some point the the the, the other side of the market effectively become catches up with you so if you do if you're all about just curation and you're and you're not really doing a lot of treatment you in the end it is sort of is extremely vulnerable to to disruption because basically the people on the other side of the market can basically say to you well we'll just disintermediate you you know if you're good enough you know the clap there's a paper i think called if if you're good enough to get into harvard you don't need to what's that effect and you know i i I think this has started to happen a little bit with yc maybe not with their very best companies but you know if you're good enough to get into yc we vc sitting here not yet to be clear you know we'll we'll give you a better deal than than the yc deal and so i think you do need a treatment effect in what you do and so i suppose the the thing that we're trying to think through and you know, I, th- I think is important is how do we do something genuinely valuable for people that scales in a way that complements our existing business model? You know, I don't think that's necessarily about pure open sourcing, but I think it is about building denser networks of founders that want access to the treatment. Uh, and it keeps you on your toes that you, you gotta, you gotta be adding something genuinely valuable in the treatment because selection in the end is, I, I, I don't think it's enduring. Last time I had you on, we discussed the future of EF. So I'd like to close with this question. How do you see EF in the next five to 10 years? I can't remember what I said last time, so I'm going <laughs> to put myself on the spot. That's why I'm asking. Um, <laughs> I think, look, I remain all, just like so convicted about the idea that the world is missing out on its best founders. And, you know, I think every, everything at EF stems from that idea. So you know, we, we always say that, you know, I, I love that Jeff Bezos thing about it makes sense for Amazon to focus on things being cheap and fast delivery because no customer is ever going to say we want it to be more expensive and slower. Our sort of EF equivalent for that is, you know, we're always going to want to be more accessible. We always want it to be easier 
for people to reach us. Um, we always want to be more attractive. So whatever that treatment is, whatever it is that we're doing for people, that should be something that appeals to the very best people. We always want to be as effective as possible. So we always want to like genuinely shift not only the frequency, but the magnitude of success for, for people that go through the program. So everything we do is always tested against one of these things. Will it make us more accessible? Will it make us more attractive? Does it make us more effective? I think the key for EF now is actually making sure those three things are in a virtuous, you know, feedback loop, which, you know, you already referenced. I think on the accessibility side, it's very clearly about how do we take that top of the funnel piece around amazing talent and exposing them at least to the cultural bit, make that truly global. I don't think it means that we need a full stack EF site in every country, but clearly one of the things that we've all learned from coronavirus is that you can replicate some but not all of, of a lot of modern work virtually. And so I certainly think part of ES future is about flattening geography at the very top of the funnel. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I would love us to reach orders of magnitude small people at the top of the funnel. I think then the, the interesting question then is like, what does that group need in order to, for us to be effective? And, you know, I, I, I do believe that the Silicon Valley is going to remain a really important part of the global startup ecosystem puzzle, if you like. I, I don't believe that the answer uh, post-COVID is, you know, geography is like irrelevant. And so I think one interesting question for EF is we're fortunate to be backed by some of the best known and best network people in Silicon Valley. And we've made some use of that so far, but I think we now need to make much more use of it and say, how can EF be the best possible bridge for you, wherever you're born, wherever you grew up, whatever you're doing now, to the very best capital and advice in the world? And some of that will deliver locally. But, you know, I think we need to be a bridge to, to that, that global network. So, you know, what does it mean? Well, you know, we've got some ideas. Uh, now's not the time to announce them. But I, I think sort of, you know, always more accessible, always more attractive, always more effective. And, and in particular, closing that geographic loop from, you know, talent is global. Clearly, there's something important about Silicon Valley. How do we make that transition seamless for the best people? Um, watch this space. That's a perfect note to end on. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seed Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeedTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.